0: Of all of the things that the world may say, God has the last word on what can change hearts and lives forever. Easter celebrates that Jesus is alive and you and your family are invited to celebrate with us. Learn all about Passion Week and Easter services at McGregor.net. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There, our Genesis foundation sprang from the will and word of the great I am. Woven deep into these foundations are rich truths of God and man, sin and righteousness, life and death, and everything else of ultimate consequence. What God started in Genesis is now settled and completed in Christ Jesus. In the wake of the flood, as we continue our study of Genesis this morning, we'll be at the the end of chapter 8, rolling into chapter 9 of the book of Genesis. In the wake of the flood, God does a remarkable thing. He often does remarkable things. But here, the flood of Noah was the most cataclysmic event the earth's ever seen. Certainly not before and not since has the earth seen death on that scale. As the righteous wrath of God on the sin of man was poured out on the earth in this, in this huge aquatic catastrophe. And through that flood, God preserved on the earth land living life in the ark. The ark came to rest at the end of the flood year. Noah and family, eight people in all, all of the animals emerged from the ark into a very, very different world. And stunningly, in the wake of all of that horrific death, God strikes a covenant with Noah and his descendants. A covenant, in simplest terms, is an agreement between two parties. It can be sort of bilateral, conditional. If you'll do this, I'll do this. Sort of like a contract. Or it can be unilateral, as one with the right and authority to do so, extends simply a promise, saying this is my covenant to you without condition. There are five major covenants that, that are, are spaced throughout the Bible. This, this first of the five major covenants, the covenant of Noah, is in fact unconditional. As we go through this covenant, you'll see that that there is nothing in this covenant that is an if-then statement. Some later covenants do have if-then statements. In fact, this covenant is the first of the five major covenants of God in the Bible. There are any number of smaller ones, but pretty inarguably, there are five major ones. And I'm going to spend time this week and beyond the notes looking at the subsequent four after this first one. And all together, the five great covenants of God make a pretty good outline of God's relationship with this fallen world. But for now, the first of these, this covenant of Noah, lays a foundation for the life-affirming character of God. In the wake of such widespread and near universal death on the earth, God steps out and makes a covenant that affirms his love of life as the author, the genesis of life. We begin this morning in Genesis 8, verse 21. We'll go down to nine seventeen, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, that is of, of Noah's sacrifice there on that first ever in scripture altar. When God smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. But neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I you But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. And for your life blood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold... and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This first of the major covenants, this the covenant of Noah is a covenant of life. And as we work our way through this covenant and several of its components, what we're going to see as a common thread that, that kind of binds this covenant together is the affirmation of our, our wondrously and phenomenally pro-life. God. Let's kind of look at some of the component parts of this covenant, some of the specific things that God has promised or mandated in this covenant. The first Roman numeral one on your outline is predictable seasons. Verse 21 and 22. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. Middle of verse 22, 21. Verse 22. While the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. It's interesting as we track through this covenant that the citizens of this world at war with God oppose the provisions of this covenant on every point. This, this wondrous and beautiful pro-life covenant that God has given us, the very symbol of this covenant has been hijacked by those who can never experience the relationship between human sexuality and the mandate to fill up the earth. Not everyone shall have kids, but those who array themselves against God's plan for human sexuality have stolen his life symbol rainbow and sought to make it their own. It is a perverse attack on this very covenant. This provision, the predictability of seasons, certainly it is appropriate for those of us who love the Lord to be effective and disciplined citizens in terms of how we use the resources on this planet over which God has given us dominion. Don't throw your garbage out the window. Don't trash the area around you It's just disrespectful and weird. On the other hand, don't you believe for one moment that humankind has its hand on the thermostat of planet Earth? While the Earth remains, seasonal cycles will continue. The living God has his omnipotent hand on the thermostatic controls of planet Earth. And climate change alarmism is incompatible with biblical faith. It just is. You can't have it both ways. Amen. Amen. If I can say it, you can applaud it. And again, if you think you just heard Brother Russell say that we ought to just trash the planet, you weren't listening. But if you think that mankind can rest from the hand of the living God, the promises of the Noahic covenant, you just don't, you don't, you don't trust him like you should. Don't get freaked out by Planetary weather cycles when God himself has said that while the earth remains, we're going to have seed time harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night. Predictable seasons preserve life. Roman numeral two. Also to preserve life after the flood, God builds protective instincts into animals. Now, praise God for animal husbandry and the intentional farming of of animals. But certainly in the wild, animals fear people. I'm not much of a fisherman. It's kind of a shame that, that the amazing fishing in this area was, for me, utterly wasted. I don't do well on little boats. I do okay on big ones. If I can you know, be on a boat with four or 5,000 of my closest friends, I typically do okay on those. But I get seasick on little boats. I've only been out in the deep water beyond the out islands here a couple of times. And uh, I end up hanging my head over the side a lot of the times. In fact, I'm very prone to motion sickness. You do this in front of me for about two minutes and I'll turn green and lose things that I have recently eaten in ways that aren't good. I've actually gotten seasick in a flat boat on the back bay in four feet of still water. I know, I know, I am weak. One of the things I've noticed about fishing is when you get out there, even if there's a bunch of fish around, they don't say, I'm here, and jump into the boat. You've got to go get them. You've got to trick them with with dangling things on hooks that they're interested in and chomp, and then you gotta work to haul them up into the boat. If you're into that, more power to you. I'll, uh, I'll eat fish with you, but I'm not all that fond of catching them. I sometimes hunt. I don't hunt as much as some people do, but every now and then I'll go out on land where I have permission to, and especially uh, nuisance, nuisance hogs. And their little piggy hearts don't go looking for the guy with the gun. They try to stay away from the guy with the gun. And if you have an alligator in the pond behind your house, they'll warn you don't go out there and, and feed that thing. Because if you get him real accustomed, he will lose his what? Fear of man. That's what we hear. Don't feed the bears in Yosemite out your car window or those same bears will lose their God-given fear of man and they'll come tearing up the next car in line behind you. It's a bad thing. God says in letter A that all animals are fair game. Everything, every moving thing that lives, verse three of Genesis nine, shall be food for you. All animals are permissible for us to eat. Now God reiterates that in the New Testament in a vision, no less, to Simon Peter. We're gonna talk about an intervening set of rules for a special set of people in a moment. But it's established in the Noahic Covenant, human beings can eat animals. In Acts chapter 10, a little context. In these early days of the church, The gospel had come through the death of Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, in the Jewish city of Jerusalem, and most of the early Christians were Jews. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had sent his Messiah to the Jewish people, and so the gospel started there. But it was always God's plan and God's gracious intent that the gospel spread to the whole world, including a whole lot of gentile people well those early christians there was a lot of debate in the first decades of the church don't they have to become jewish first don't they have to conform to jewish expectations one of the first highly prominent gentile converts in the book of acts he's not the first but he's one of the first is a roman army officer by the name of cornelius Not only was he Gentile, he was capital G Gentile, an officer in the occupying army of the Roman Empire living in Judea. And the time came for the grace of God to go to Cornelius and his household. Cornelius was praying, and an angel showed up at his house and said to him, Cornelius, Here's what you need to do. Now, it's interesting. The angel did not share the gospel with Cornelius because it's not the job of angels to share the gospel. Whose job is it to share the gospel? Uh, Yep, not a trick question. Good for you. The angel told Cornelius, send up the coast. There's a guy named Peter staying as a guest in the house of a guy named Simon by the sea. Send guys up there and have him come down here and he's going to tell you about eternal life. Meanwhile, up in the house of Simon by the sea, Simon Peter, who is so very Jewish, kosher to the core, is about to learn a lesson about the breaking down of the Jewish boundaries around the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that God uses food as an illustration and principle to teach this lesson. We join the narrative in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 9. The next day, as they, that is the messengers from Cornelius the centurion, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That's noon. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, by no means, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. <laughs> For me, that's a, that's a terrific moment because Simon Peter, who is so enamored with his commitment to personal self-righteousness. God, I've kept the rules, I've kept the rules, I've kept the rules. He's he's feeling quite self-righteous in his keeping of all the rules. And so in this moment, he's arguing for personal holiness. Who is he arguing with about how holy he is? He's arguing personal holiness with the living God. I think I've done that. Lord, have you noticed how good I'm being? Lord, have you noticed how, how holy I've been of late? Russell, you're a sinner and you better break your heart again, right? You are out of my will every time you consider yourself to be oh so righteous. But certainly, though the point was Gentile salvation, the principle is it's all fair game. Now, in the meanwhile, in an interim her be on your outline, God's law for Israel is going to introduce all kinds of restrictions on what animals can and cannot be eaten. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna go there and go over it with you because we are a predominantly Gentile crowd. But if you are interested in the sort of master index of the meat restrictions of the Jewish law, the law of God for the people of Israel, you can go to Leviticus 11. And be blessed by that. And should you choose to make those restrictions, restrictions with which you will conform, you have every right. Should you choose not to make those restrictions a way of life for you, you have every right. If you want to do a Levitical diet, more power to you. If you want to do a Daniel diet, go all hardcore with it, more power to you. You want to explore veganism. Again, I've shared this before. Will, they tell me it will add more years to your life, more long and miserable years. <laughs> Just kidding. I am so kidding. I do not need emails from vegans. But listen to let her see what a Christian does. With these restrictions, is explicitly a matter of that Christians' conscience and freedom. The Bible is not clear on that. Romans, I mean, the Bible is not unclear on that. Romans fourteen verses one through four. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. It's a matter of conscience. It's a matter of personal freedom. But in the Noah covenant and reiterated in Acts 10, all, all animals are fair game. However, letter D, for the protection of life, animals will have an innate fear of man. Apparently they did not have this innate fear of man before the flood. That would have made loading the ark way difficult. If every animal Noah approached just skittered away. But as the animals had no reason to fear man before the flood, that made the still doubtless supernatural miracle of the animals boarding the ark But they didn't have to overcome their today instinctive fear of man. And the animals are there as a stewardship matter. Like we said about pollution and the planet. They're there for us to take advantage of. Fur to keep warm if that's your thing. There's no biblical prohibition on that. We certainly have over-harvested, and it's a horrific thing. The glory of God is not served by by hunting African elephants to near extinction for the sake of the ivory in their tusks. Those aren't good things, and that's not good stewardship, but responsible stewardship of the animal kingdom on mankind's behalf and the fear of man on the animal's half to protect life and glorify God. Roman numeral three, the preciousness of blood. The preciousness of blood. Verse 4, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Living flesh where the blood is still flowing is, is not to be eaten. And that, by the way, is similarly prohibited in the New Testament in Acts 15. The reason it's prohibited is letter A. Blood is the symbol of the ultimate sacrifice. Blood is the symbol of the sacrifice of our Lord for us. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways, futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then only, let her be on your outline, only by the bloody sacrifice of Christ have our sins been forgiven. Romans, I mean, Hebrews 9, 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It's one of the heart truths, one of the core truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross is the basis of the salvation of every fallen child of Adam and Eve that will ever be saved. If you're here this morning, and as many of you do, it is, you give testimony that Christ has saved you. You have turned from your sin and trusted Jesus Christ by faith. You have, you have repented. You are living that life under the, the fellowship of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, That door of repentance was opened for you by the shedding of blood of Jesus Christ and by no other means. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross opens the door for men and women, boys and girls, young people to be saved. Paid for on the cross, proven by the resurrection, the death of Jesus. That's great news for all of us who are in Christ. It's terrible news if you plan on working your way to heaven. Because the the sin nature that you inherited and the sinful behavior that you have wrapped around it compound to condemn you to a life of punishing, wrathful separation from God. And you can't work your way out of the sin debt and its immensity. You're, you're here today. And I suspect for people who, who come to a morning service at McGregor, you're interested in at least some sort of moral touchstone, some sort of, of ethical uh, procedure. There's in you some desire to not be as bad as you could possibly be. And I would affirm that. But that becomes horribly dangerous if it becomes your conclusion that you can be good enough to work your way out of your sin debt without the application of the blood of Jesus Christ. You must turn from your sin. We use the word repentance a lot. It is not a complicated word. It is to have a, a thoroughgoing change of mind regarding the nature of your own sin. The heart of which, by the way, is the sin of self-righteousness that has you telling yourself you can be good enough to be okay with God. You can't. You just can't. And you've got to come to that place of repentance. Acts 17, Paul told the philosophers of Athens that God commands all men everywhere to repent and you are no exception to that command and then having repented turn to Christ in faith as you turn away from your sin trust him faith simply means to trust him trust Jesus Christ and him alone as the guide stone of your life trust his sacrifice alone as your means to be right with God and your entry into eternal life that begins the moment you receive Jesus Christ by faith. It is the blood of Jesus that pays the price for our eternal life in heaven. Those of us who follow him. The blood is precious. And the life-affirming character of the Noah covenant is to hold out that highest symbol of eternal life. So the predictable seasons sustain life the protective instincts of the animals to sustain their life the preciousness of blood speaks to eternal life and then the penalty for murder affirms the value of life the life of the image bearers human life from conception to death is precious to the living God so much so that if a human being takes another human being's life there are to be dire consequences now i will put a couple of footnotes here these things are fleshed out in the later law of god but this is not speaking here to death imposed in time of war there's a whole different set of biblical principles for that perhaps on a different day This is not speaking of the imposition of death in justifiable self-defense. The Word of God spoke to that a long time before Florida's castle doctrine did. This is speaking of murder. First, animals who kill people should pay a penalty. I will require a reckoning from every beast. If an animal kills a human being, that animal is to be put to death. Under the terms of the Noahic covenant. Further, let her be for people who kill people. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. The death penalty for capital murder is a pro life position because it puts a stringent and severe guide around the horrible danger and horrific waste of the wanton killing of a human being. This principle, the execution of the murderer is affirmed originally here in the covenant of Noah. It is reaffirmed in the law of Moses. Exodus chapter 21 verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. It's further affirmed in case you, you would think, well, yeah, but that sounds very Old Testament to me. Surely in the, in the grace of the New Testament, the rules are different. No. The duty of the state to impose order, including the tool of the death penalty, is affirmed in the New Testament. Romans 13, verse 4, speaking of the civil government. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now that's in the book of Romans, which was written to a church in Rome under the rule of the Roman Empire. And the, uh, the, the statement that's being made is the Roman Empire, for the imposition of civil order, carries a sword and it doesn't do so vainly. The Roman Empire did not use that sword to turn it sideways and smack people on the bottom. Sword in the hands of the Roman Empire here is the emblem and symbol and tool of capital punishment. So a couple of things. First, we must never as image bearers of the living god who respect life made in his image you and i must never be gleeful in a conversation about the death penalty we must never be careless in our affirmation of the death penalty we don't need to be in a hurry we don't need to be vindictive or flippant the death of an image bearer is a tragic thing even when that death is just when viewed biblically it is still a grievous heavy tragic thing however it is consistent with the noic covenant the old testament law and new testament revelation Friend, if you hold to the authority of Scripture, you do not need to come up with your own opinion regarding the death penalty. God has spoken. It's one of the various things. You don't have to go to all the effort to come up with a position. The living God has told you what your position is if you hold to the authority of Scripture. But don't be happy about it. And then finally, the permanence of his promise. God hung a rainbow in the sky and said, whenever you see that rainbow, know that I too see that rainbow and I remember my promise that while there is a world, until I end it one day in fire, I shall never again flood it completely with water. It is a tragedy, a blasphemy, and a treason against a holy God that the rainbow symbol has been taken as the symbol of sexual perversion and horrific sin when the rainbow is the symbol of the living God's commitment to life on earth. May we uphold it as such. I recommend that if you see somebody in the parking lot at the grocery store with a rainbow sticker in their car, you thank them that they're as pro-life as God is. (laughs) Then duck and cover and then stand up and tell them about Jesus.